0: So, we are going to be getting into it. We move on to another chapter today, chapter 18. How exciting is this? 24 chapters in the book of Joshua. We are 107 messages in. We're almost there. Awesome, awesome, awesome. We may have a world record for how long it's going to take us to get through the book of Joshua, but man, today's going to be good. And we're only going to do one verse, just telling you, anyway. Um, but last week, uh, we were in a message. that was called Confronting Ingratitude. And what we were talking about was we were looking at Joshua chapter 17. We were in the backside in verses 14 through 18. And we were listening in on a conversation that was taking place between the sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim. and. The, uh, and Joshua, and what we saw there was this discontentment that was taking place between the two of them and Joshua kind of dealing with it, helping them to be redirected in the way they were thinking. He was trying to help them to go, hey, be thankful for what you have. Why don't you be happy with that, right? And this is the issue that we saw with them, and also that we all have to be aware of this, but we learned four things from them. First thing we realized was, first of all, ingratitude derives from discontentment, and we took note of the pattern that exists in them but also exists in us which is our tendency to, unfortunately, um, not look at what it is we've been blessed with, but look at what it is we do not have. We look at what we don't have in our lives, and so many times the blessings that we have received and been given by God just go completely unseen and unnoticed. And if you realize, in fact, if we thought about really what it is that we deserve, right, as the lives we've lived, the choices we've made, the things we've done, the people we have hurt, if we got what we deserved, it would be a very bad day. But by the grace of God, we don't get what we deserve. We experience the grace and the love of God. So then we thought the second thing we learned was ingratitude must be challenged and redirected. And what we saw was Joshua confronting their in, their ingratitude. And what happened was he did it by really trying to redirect them, refocus them back on what was important, remembering who it is that they were and putting their faith and trust in God. And what he did was he pointed them back to the instructions that they had been given, which was to drive out the Canaanites. This didn't come from Joshua. This came from from God. And what we saw, as opposed to them going, you're right, we need to do that, they immediately started to come up with excuses. They started to come up with justifications of why what he was saying wasn't accurate, and he needed to redirect, or they needed to redirect him. So they were trying to educate Joshua in what he was telling them. Hey, listen, Joshua, yeah, we hear what you're saying, but listen, (laughs) we can't do it. Though God had commanded them to do it and it empowered them to do it, they still said they could not. And what's interesting was the way Joshua dealt with it before he had challenged them. But what he does now is he shifted the way he dealt with it and he actually encouraged them. He actually encouraged them to become who it was God created them to be. And what we saw on that fourth thing was the ingratitude is eliminated when God's people appreciate and consecrate what it is that he's already given them. And so as Joshua closed his discourse, what he did was he really challenged them. He spoke to them as courageous warriors. He spoke to them as victors as opposed to whiny children, which is what they were. And so what he's doing is he's saying, hey, listen, my faith is not in you per se. My faith is in the God that we serve, right? God's already given us the land. He's prepared the way. He's done all the work to give it to us. Now what you'll need to do is fulfill your role, what it is God's called us to do. And what happens, you and I have been called to do something. We've been called to be a representative of the Lord on this earth. We're supposed to be called to, to make a difference in the lives of others through people seeing us realizing that this life is not about us. We talked about that last week. It's not about us, right? It's about, it's about him. So as it closed out chapter 17, it really closed out with the challenge of, hey, listen, this is who you can be. And so what we're going to see as we transition out of that place of ingratitude is we're going to see now what's going to happen is Joshua's actually going to sort of do sort of a refocusing of the Israelites. Now, is this because of the circumstances that were going on because of the grumbling under this under the surface, maybe the other tribes were sort of listening in and they were feeling discontented as well. We don't really know why, but we do know what God what he does is he refocuses them, really kind of sort of we could call it a reset. He's getting them on course before they move forward from this point. He says, "Listen, we're going to refocus ourselves and get our hearts set in the right place." Now, as I said, we're only going to be in that first verse, but the reason why this first verse is important is because it's going to set the stage for the rest of this entire book. It is all about getting reset, refocused for what's going to happen as they move forward. So the Israelites, remember, their job was to conquer the promised land. Their job was to possess the promised land. They were to make it holy. And so what we're going to do is we listen to what Josh was teaching us today is remember that this is a picture, right? This is a picture for you and I. We learn from their example. So as we look at them conquering their promised land, as they're continuing to move forward, we need to apply the exact same lessons to our own walk because our promised land is not a physical place, but it is a spiritual place where we walk with God. It is an abundant life with Christ. It's what God expects of us to make our promised land holy, right? And if we are holy, guess what? We make a beautiful image and make a difference in the world around us. But if we're not careful, we can be consecrated or not not consecrated and get caught up in our own cares and concerns. What we'll see today is they're going to be united in their focus, united in their faith, and united in their purpose. In the messages this morning, which is titled Centered on the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for the gift of life. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of your word. Thank you for the spirit that dwells within us. Thank you, Lord, for your purpose and plan for these lives that you've given us, God. I do pray that you would work Today, God, like maybe never before, God, as we move forward in this life and we deal with the adversities, every person in this room, God, I know, has got to wait in some shape or form that's, that's, that, they're, that they're carrying. And God, there are concerns, Lord, that are heavy on people's hearts. And Father, as we continue to try to strive and move forward in our promised land to, to possess and, and live a life that's holy and consecrated unto you that makes a difference, God, I know there are going to be challenges that are placed before us. And, Lord, I help us to have ears to hear today, Lord, that we might learn what it is you want us to learn. And then not only learn it, but, Lord, apply it in our lives that you might do something great and mighty through this body, through this church. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the power that it possesses. And thank you, Lord, for what you're going to show us today. I'm going to do my best, Lord, if you'll help me just to get out of the way. Speak to us in a a straightforward and, Lord, a plain manner. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Joshua chapter 18, verse 1. It says, And the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of the congregation there, and the land was subdued before them. So the first thing that we notice is that we see a shift in gears. What's happened is Joshua has been individually dealing with specific tribes, and now what we see is he's going to deal with them as a whole. Now, as he does this in this United state, what we're going to see is the fact that he's going to reminding them about who it is this thing is all about, right? What is the focus? What is the purpose? Because what happens when we start looking at our individual inheritance, our individual lives, we can get caught up in what's important to us. Right. And as we get what's important, what's important to us, we lose sight of what's important to him. Right. And so this is an important thing. He's recentering them, giving them an opportunity to go, oh, yeah, yeah, okay. (laughs) Right. What's what's our job? What is it we're supposed to be accomplishing? And we spoke about it last week, about the fact that, listen, if we're not careful, we'll lose sight of our mission. We'll lose sight of the purpose of why we're on Earth and we'll make things about ourselves. Right. We even have a shirt. I was thinking about this. Like I said, it's over the door. We even run our shirt says, right, it's not about me. It's all about him. And this is something that we need to remind ourselves every single day. Because I tell you, if we're not careful, we will make our entire life about us. People can go to the Bible, which is all about God. And guess what they do? This is a self-help book for me. (laughs) This is all about me. No, it's not about you. It's about him. And what it does is when you look into it, it helps you to realize who it is you're supposed to be. Not trying to conform God's word to say who you are and making you something special we're not special we are special because God loves us but listen we are all just sinners saved by grace we have an opportunity on this earth to make a difference not because we're something special but because God can do something with nothing praise God I'm standing up here as nothing right I don't bring any talents I don't bring any bills and if you know if you spend personal time with me you know I'm not a smart person I'm an average intelligent at best but what I've done is I've simply said look God show me show me your truth So as the Israelites gather here at Shiloh, it's cool, man. The first point we'll see is this, that they're united in focus. It says, and the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh. So what's interesting is the fact that they're gathered in this specific place called Shiloh. And I want you to look at your map on your your sheet. Now, if you take it, and if you were to measure from all where the 12 tribes are, I'm talking west and east, and you kind of look at where that land, where Shiloh ends up, it is almost... The exact dead center of all of the 12 tribes. This land sits literally right in the middle. And then interestingly, on top of that, it's in the land of Ephraim. Now, we talked about Joseph had two two sons. There was Manasseh and there was Ephraim. There was the firstborn, which is Manasseh. And then we talked about how God works in the Old Testament where he has a preference over the second birth. And we talked about this several weeks ago. Why is that relevant? Why does that matter? Because what God's doing is he's picturing our second birth. We're born physically and then we're born spiritually. And so here's Manasseh, the second born. We see that principle. We saw it laid out in the book of Genesis. We see it in Cain and Abel. We see it in Ishmael and Isaac. We also see it in Esau and Jacob. And now again with Ephraim and with Manasseh. And so there's a relevance to why it takes place in the, the, the land of Ephraim. A picture of the flesh and a picture of the spirit. So it's only fitting that God is going to center them. He's going to focus them in Ephraim, in the second born. And then on top of that, we see Shiloh. And what's very interesting about Shiloh is the meaning of the word Shiloh, this city. Specifically, Shiloh has an unusual name and its location is very cool that it's dead center. So what do we do? If we're going to understand what the word Shiloh means, we go to the law first mention in scripture. This tells us if there's a word I want to really understand, let me go find the very first time it appears in the Bible. And when I go to that very first time and read what's talking about, that's going to be an indicator of what God wants to telegraph the meaning of that word throughout time. So the first time it shows up, is going to sort of show me what it is all about. Genesis chapter 49, verse 10 is where Shiloh first appears. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh come, and unto him shall the gathering of the people be. So it says, Until Shiloh come, and unto him. Okay? So this is not a city that Shiloh is talking about. The word i mention here. Shiloh, in this reference, is pointing to an individual. Okay? An individual who just happens to be from the tribe of Judah, who just happens to be an individual who will be a ruler, who will be a lawgiver, who will bring justice, and upon his coming, guess what? We'll gather his people. How interesting. Does that sound like anybody we've ever heard of? Possibly. If we go to the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. He says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. And we see this at Christmas time, and we hear this verse read, and we're like, yeah, man, It's talking about the coming of Jesus, and yes, it is in the first 13 words, but that's the only part. That's the first coming, the child, but the rest of this is actually talking about the second coming, because it says the government will be upon his shoulders. It says all these things about him bringing justice, the throne of David, all these aspects of the kingdom, which we didn't see in his first coming, so we see this pointing to the second and so what happens is so many times we miss out on what the picture is, what God's showing us in regard to the second coming, the relevance of what is so key, because guess what? God is going to finally get the glory that he deserves. He should have got it when he first came. But the Bible says that they rebuked him, that they reviled him, that they mistreated him, that they tortured him. They called him a liar and a heretic. Oh, but not a second time. So Shiloh means the coming Messiah. That's what Shiloh actually means. And how interesting that Joshua chose this city over any other city in all of Canaan to gather God's people. And it just happens to be at the dead center of the land, focusing their hearts and uniting them in a location in the very center of the land with a place that is named after God's ultimate plan for redemption and restoration to this world. So it's no accident. Now, did Joshua know that when he picked that? No. Do the people know that this is a representation of that? No. They're just living life. They're just functioning through history. But God's saying, "Uh uh-uh, this isn't for them per se, but this is for you guys. Because you're going to look back and it's going to be in his word. It's going to be in my word. And I'm going to carry it through time so that it'll telegraph a meaning to you. And you'll be able to recognize that God always plays the long game. They don't know what's going on in the moment. But God's saying, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh, this isn't for them. This is for you. So pay attention to the details because guess what? They're all... They're all relevant. It's beautiful that it places them here at Shiloh. And you you see, as a believer, listen, we should be united in our focus. We should be united physically, emotionally, spiritually. We should be combining ourselves, setting our hearts on our coming Messiah. See, not only as individuals, but also as a church, this should be our focus. We should be thinking about the coming of the Lord. We're so focused on today. We're so focused on surviving today. And God says, listen, you're not promised tomorrow just so you know, because I might be arriving tomorrow. I might be arriving through the midway through this service. You might get to the next line, and I guess what? A trumpet might sound and we will be gone, right? I saw a truck, my wife and I were driving, uh, and I saw this car and it said a sticker. It said, be warned, if you hear a, if you hear a, if you hear a, a trumpet sound, this vehicle is gonna be out of control. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> I was like well, how cool is that, right? And it's what it's gonna be, man. You're just gone, man, a pile of clothes laying on the ground. And you know what this world's going to do? They're going to go, you know what? It must have been an alien abduction. Yes. <laughs> they took all these folks, and you know, we, you know, we got to prepare and unite ourselves together because guess what? They're coming against us. I'm telling you, the Bible talks about a strong delusion that's going to come upon humanity, and when we're gone, they're going to find a way to explain it away. And you know what? God is coming. His return is soon. It's imminent. Now, we hear that a lot. We talk about the return of the Lord. It's very close. It's very close. It's very close. It's very close. Now, there are naysayers. They're going to say, you know what? My grandma said that. My great-grandma told my, ma- my grandma that. And my mom, you know what? She talked about it. And you know what? Everything's just exactly the same as it was before. They've been saying he's going to be coming for a long time. But you know what? If he was going to come, I guess he would have come. But listen, Peter, who this is in the first century, Peter's going to address the very same thing as he's going to talk. Listen to this in 2 Peter verses 3-14. through 14. He says, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers. These are people that are, where is Jesus? Whatever. Walking after their own lusts. Hello. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, since our parents died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. Nothing's changed. You've been saying He's going to be coming for all this time. Where is He? For this they they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, where we are right today, By the same word are kept in store, reserved on the friar against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. There is a day of judgment coming, right? God is going to bring a wrath upon this earth. Not because God hates the earth. He loves the earth. He loves humanity. He gave a way for people to escape. But guess what? There is always going to be an eventual day of judgment for sin. Listen, God is a just God, but what he has been doing is holding back his wrath for generations, trying to reach this lost world. Notice what it says next. Verse 8, but beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Peter's saying, these people are going, well, is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be tomorrow? Well, if a, if a day is a thousand years and a thousand years a day, it could be tomorrow. Um, but beloved, Be not only this one thing, but one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Verse nine: The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward. He says, "Listen, if God said it's going to happen, it's going to happen." But what we find is the fact that He is long-suffering. Long-suffering is the word that means patience with humanity. He's saying long-suffering to usward, to humanity, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's given us every opportunity to come to Him. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heaven shall pass away with a great noise. Can you imagine if God's describing a great noise? We've all heard explosions. We've all heard great noises. This is going to be something that will be unbelievable, a sound that will be unbelievable. And the elements shall melt with fervent heat. That means diamonds in your rings will turn to puddles, man. It is going to melt everything. And the earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved, what manner of person, since you realize that this is coming, here's the, this, this, is, this is the challenge to us. What manner of person ought you to, ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness? How does knowing that change the way you live your life? Are you living consecrated? Are you living holy? Are you trying to seek the Lord? Verse 12, Looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless... We, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. You know what? This earth dwelleth sin. This is a place that is eaten up with sin. But he's saying, you know what? When I make this place again, it will be eaten up with righteousness. Amen. It will be holy. There will be no more sin. Where it says, wherefore, since we know this truth, wherefore, beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent, don't quit that ye may be found of him in peace, without spot, and blameless. Focus on holiness. Think about your promised land and get the Canaanites, the sin in your life, get it out. Now, we hear this and we go, okay. The question we have to ask ourselves is, am I ready? If it was today, am I ready? Am I right now currently at peace with God, without spot? And blameless? Maybe not. But guess what? God's given us a little time. What if in this service you say, you know what? I'm going to get my heart right. What if when I leave this place, you know what? The things I've been struggling with, the rebellion that I've been dealing with, the, 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 the dis, uh, discontentment. I was going to say, I was going to bind those two words somehow. I don't know how I was going to do that. But anyway, the discontentment that's in me, right? I'm going to address it. I'm going to make things right with the Lord. Because the beautiful thing is He is a forgiving God. He's always got an ear to hear our concerns and cares. And he always has a heart to restore. He's always, always there. And so here, do we have our heart set on Shiloh on the second coming? According to Joshua, what he's doing here, we should be, right? He is redirecting them. He's setting the stage for victory. And he's trying to get God's people to look at the long game, to stop struggling with the cares of the world. Because what happens, short-sightedness is our struggle. We don't look to the long game. We're not focused on what God's doing. We're focused on what we're dealing with in the moment. And because of that, we lose sight of who it is we're supposed to be. And he's saying, listen, no. Why is Shiloh important? Because guess what? This is about him. Don't get focused on where you're at or what you're struggling with. Think about what the purpose of your overall life is. Can I promise you, if you look around right now, you can see the chaos in the world. And you can see that he is closer now than he has ever, ever been. And so if if we come to that realization, we nod our heads saying, yes. How does it change the way we live? Do we just go right back to the same old pattern of survival? Well, you know what? I got plenty of time. I got plenty of time. And you know what? When the trumpet sounds, there'll be people sitting there thinking, I had plenty of time. And it'll be too late. It'll be too late. Some will leave by way of the rapture. Others will leave by way of the grave. But they'll all stand. All stand before the Lord. We must live with a sense of... Of urgency, our accountability to our coming Savior. It should strengthen our faith. It should focus our faith. It should mobile us for the work of the Lord. It should mobile us for the souls of men. Conversations we have with people, we should be thinking not just about how it's gonna what we're gonna gain or what we're gonna learn, but maybe how, what about their soul? What's their eternal circumstance? Because i promise you, most of the people you meet outside of this lice outside of this place. They're not on their way to heaven. And when God comes to judge, they will stand for their sin. And that's going to be a horrific, horrific time. But God loves them. And right now, during the age of grace, we can reach them. So let's open our mouths and tell them. So we should be mobilized in the work of the Lord. We should be surrendered to God emotionally, physically, uh, financially, giving of our hearts, giving of our lives, that God can use them. And the next we see that the preparation is isn't just about gathering at Shiloh, but also what they actually put together and build there. United in their faith is our second point. And it says, and they set up the tabernacle of the congregation there. Now, when we did the book of Exodus, which uh, we did the whole thing in over 100 messages, which is amazing. If I did it now, I think it would be 300 messages. I have no idea. It would take us longer. But the point is this, we covered the tabernacle and we talked about it great lengths about what the tabernacle was. And the word tabernacle literally just translates as a dwelling place. That's all it is. It's the dwelling place of God. We might call it God's mobile home, okay? Um, and so what would happen is they would carry it on their backs and they would set it up in different locations. And in that holy of holies, God would come down on the mercy seat, which was part of the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where God would come and commune with with mankind, But tab- the, the tabernacle that Moses had built in the wilderness, it was created um, based upon the fact that God's spirit, God's word was spoken to, to Moses and he was given specific instructions on exactly what it was they would do. God determined for them the structure, he determined for them the size, the way that it would be oriented, he described the appearance that it would have, what it would be made up of, down to the finest detail. And so the fact that this tabernacle is going to be assembled at Shiloh, which is pointing to the second coming of the Lord, has significance. Because listen, it's about the Lord's physical representation on the earth. Recognize that's what the tabernacle was. It was the physical representation of God on the earth. It was the dwelling place of God's spirit. And can I tell you, the tabernacle is significant. It's pointing to the future, just like Shiloh is. Notice what it says in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. It says, now of the things which we have spoken of, this is the sum. Paul uh, in this situation saying, hey, listen, um, you know, this is the the, this, the the general concept I'm trying to share with you. This is this is it. We have such an high priest, okay? A high priest. These the high priest is the one that would be the, make the atonement sacrifice for the people. He was the guy that could go behind the veil. He was the guy that was the, the top dog. He was a representative of humanity before God. And he says here that we have a such an high priest, listen, who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. This is not a man, not like you and I know, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle. Hear this? The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched and not man. He's like, I'm not talking about the high priest that's on the earth. I'm talking about the high priest that's in heaven and his name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the true tabernacle is is, is God's heavenly presence. So what he's saying is, listen, what Joshua and the Israelites had access to was a representation. It was a facsimile, a model of what exists in God's presence in the throne room of God. The human high priest that ministered there was nothing more than a representation He was a stand-in for the Lord. And the temporary atonements that he made for sin were a foreshadowing of the ultimate sacrifice that our great high priest would make on our behalf. Okay? Notice what it continues to say here. For every high priest is ordained to offer gifts and sacrifices whereof, wherefore it is of necessity that this man have someone also to offer. For if he were on earth, uh, he should not be a priest, seeing that there are priests that offer gifts according to the law." Verse number five, who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. So what was happening is those priests were ministering there at the tabernacle saying, listen, that's just foreshadowing. It's an image of what's to come, right? Foreshadowing would be the, the lamb, right? The lamb of God at the, at the, uh, at the uh, those are all good answers. That's not what I'm thinking about. But, uh, in, in the Exodus, right? The lamb in the Exodus, What's it, why is it that lamb? Why was it significant? Because guess what? They chose the lamb and they both the blood of the lamb. It was a picture of Christ. It was a foreshadowing, right? In Genesis 22, when Abraham is taking Isaac up to sacrifice, it's a foreshadowing of what's to come. When these guys were doing their service in the temple or in the tabernacle, guess what He say Foreshadowing. He's saying, listen, it's a shadow of heavenly things. It's an image of what's to come. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the, the tabernacle, for he says, this is God's speaking. He says, See, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mount. I showed you the real deal. And you're going to make yours following the pattern that I gave you. And what we'll see as we look at this heavenly pattern on your map, or in, your, on your, in your image there, what you're going to see is there's three sections to the tabernacle. Okay? This is what's called the outer court. Okay? Here, this tent is split up into two sections. This first section is called the holy place. And then this second section here was called the holy of holies. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant rested. The Ark of the Covenant was so important. But listen, it was also where God's representation was. It was incredibly key. And it was one man, one day a year, who would be able to be in the presence of that thing and not die. Anyone else would be killed. They weren't to touch it. It was always had staves, sticks that they picked it up so that no one would touch it. And when they would set up the temple, you go, well, how did they put it in there? Well, guess what? It explains to you. God says, listen, when those guys go in there, what they're going to do is they're going to take the veil. They're going to lift it up. They're going to walk over to the ark, and they're going to cover it so that no one sees it. They're going to wrap it up. And guess what? When they get there and they set the ark down, they're going to take that veil off. They're all going to go like this. They're going to pick it up like this, and they're going to put the veil back in place so no one sees it. It is the representation of God. It's the holy of holies. But what's really cool about this is the fact that as we look at each section, let's put, can you put that image back up there real quick? So the first section here, this is called the gate, right? We hear that phrase in Psalms, says enter his gates with thanksgiving, enter his courts with praise. This gate right here had a name, and it was called the way. So he came into the court, into this part, through the way. Then you'd walk your way through, you'd go through this altar to this laver, and then you'd get here, and there's an entrance into this door. And in this holy place, this one was called the truth. Now, this is where you had the candlestick, yes. right? A picture of the Spirit of God, an image of God, right? Spirit of God. Then you had the, the showbread table. It had two stacks of bread, six and six, 66 books, right? 6 representing the 12. And then there was that golden altar that was right up against the veil. And as they would light that incense and it would go up, that smoke represented the prayers of God's people. And so when you enter through that door, that door was called truth. And then when you were going to go in to that last door, that one day a year, that man would step through. And you know what? He wore a, a, a they tied a cord around his ankle. And he wore bells on his clothing, little jingler's. Because if he went in and he wasn't right with God, he would die. And the jingles would stop and they'd go, oh. Didn't work out for Bill. <laughs> All right, Marty, you ready? Oh, better make sure you're right with God. Right? It's no joke, man. But that was called the life. That's what that is called. And so when Jesus, in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, Amen. the truth, and the life. And notice what it says. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Amen. And guess where the Father would come down? On the mercy seat. And the only way was through Him. And so when we see the tabernacle, was this beautiful picture of Christ. So it's not unusual that it's at Shiloh that the tabernacle is established. It's not unusual that God's drawing them together. And you remember what Jesus said in in John 10, verses 7 and verse 9? He says, I am the door. I am the door. You enter in through me. So our access to God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. There's one mediator between us and God, the man Christ, Jesus. Jesus Right, So Jesus is absolutely the key. He's our entry point into God. And He must be our focus and the foundation of our faith. What does He tell us Himself? And the Beatitudes in Matthew 6.33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Make me your first love. That was His problem with the church of Ephesus in the book of Revelation. He says, you've left your first love. You've done so many things right, but you've got your heart off of me. Right? We don't want to be uh, 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 adulterous to our Savior. Yeah. But when our eyes are on the world, you know, the Bible tells us that we are literally. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? When you're adulterous? I don't. I don't. Cheater. Well, maybe, it's, maybe it's adulterous I'm looking at. Adulterous and adulteresses. That's it. I was, trying, I, was trying to think. I was thinking about the verse. Anyway, bear with me. I'm not a, like I said, I'm not a smart man. Um, <laughs> so they assemble here. At the tabernacle, right? And it's, it's cool because what he's doing, what's he doing? He's refocusing them. He's recentering them, right? Because there's been all this stuff going on and they've got their eyes all over this place. So no, 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 no. Let's, let's get ourselves set back on what it is this thing's all about, about what's truly important. You see, Joshua understands how easily the Israelites can be drawn into squabbling and complaining. Just look at what's dealt with, what he's dealt with with Ephraim and Manasseh. This is exactly where he's come from. And so it's this physical representation, right, taking them here before they take another step into their journey or in in, in receiving their inheritance. Let's get everybody focused around this physical representation, the tabernacle. Now, what's interesting about the tabernacle is it existed for about 1,500 years on earth from the time it was built in the book of Exodus. and At the end of 15 years, in different forms, it became the temple that Solomon built. But in 70 A.D., A guy named Titus came in who was a Roman emperor, a Roman leader, and guess what? They destroyed it. They utterly wrecked it. It was gone. But you see, at that point in time, it had already been replaced because there was a physical representation that came about 2,000 years ago that walked on the earth for 33 and a half years that walked around carrying the spirit of God within him. He was the physical representation of God on earth. And then when he left, there was another replacement, you and I. As believers, guess what the Bible tells us, right? The transition took place. First Corinthians 6, 19 tells us this, the temple. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and you are not your own. So making us now, believers in Christ, the physical representation of God on earth. We become the temple. Here we, here we are. How are we caring for our temple? How are we consecrating our temple? Where are we placing it in this world? Making us this physical representation of the Lord. What does God tell us? He says we're supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. What's an ambassador? A representative. He says we're supposed to be lights in the darkness. Not our light, his light. We're supposed to be hope to the hopeless. Not our hope. Our hope is in Christ. But centered on the Lord. Focused in our faith. So that we can be a billboard to the world around us. Because ultimately, listen, that's the whole goal. Our life is supposed to speak to the life of someone else. Someone who's hopeless looks at someone who has hope who shouldn't, and they go, how does that happen? How do they have what they, how is that possible? And so what we have to ask ourselves is, what does our life display to the broken world, the lost world around us? What does our billboard read? What does my life speak to the life of a person who's looking into my life? It should be hope. It should be light. It should be Christ. But if we allow the world to get a hold of us, then what happens? That billboard tends to show the things of the world. We just look like an advertisement for the internet. But that's not why we're here. We're supposed to be advertising Christ. And in order to prepare God's people for the challenges they had, Joshua's centering them on the Lord physically and spiritually. And can I tell you, listen, if we want to succeed in this life for the glory of God, that has got to be what we do. You cannot be attached to the world and in love with the world and have all the things, the trappings and distractions in your life and be a positive representative of who God's created you to be and what you're here for. And then the world dies around us and we stand, we think of all the justifications, just like the other guys, of why it is we didn't do what we should have done. We need to be centered on the Lord physically by committing our lives to his use, right? What does Romans chapter 12, verse number one says? He says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable. Notice that, holy, acceptable unto him, right? Which is your reasonable service. That's the very least God should expect of us, that we would volunteer our lives after he's given us his, right? That's what he's saying. Hey, listen, this is, this is your opportunity. So are we making ourselves literally available emotionally, financially, and physically, and then, not only are we to do it that in that physical form, but we're also supposed to do it spiritually, setting our hearts, our focus on the Lord, making Him preeminent in our hearts, centering ourselves around what truly matters, making the Lord the focus of our lives, the focus of our choices, the focus of the decisions that we make for our families, the jobs that we take, all the things that we do. We keep God in the back of our mind. It's like I let the Lord guide and direct all that we, all that we do, and remembering. That he is our access to the Father. Joshua knew this recentering and rededication was essential for the Israelites. And I tell you, they are just as essential for you and I. We have got to have ears to hear. These are not just stories of some random people that were in a desert land. This is given to us to teach us principles and ideas how to live this Christian life. And if we miss that, man, oh man, we miss it. This whole thing is about showing us what we need to learn. And if we'll do those first two, the ones we just mentioned, right? then guess what? The third one, well, it'll be, it'll be a lot easier because it says that they're united in purpose. And that, this verse ends with this. And the land was subdued before them. Now, subdued does not say mean conquered. What that means is that God has paved the way. This place is already defeated, but you will have to Get up off your tuft, get out there and go get it. Walk by faith. God has given, listen, he's given them a godly leader. He's empowered them as a people. He's weakened their enemies and he's given them specific instructions on exactly it is they are to succeed. It is subdued. It is prepared. The, 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 the way has been paved for them to receive it. Now they just need to get up and go do the work. He's reminding them that their victory is theirs for the taking but see, now the ball is in their court. And you've got to realize, as believers, listen, the victory is ours for the taking. We are more than conquerors through him that loved us. He's talking about why we're here on earth. We can be victorious. We can be conquerors. The th- things of this world, listen, God has subdued the world. Is there a battle to fight? Absolutely. But he's the one that does the fighting, right? How do we win somebody to the Lord? Do we have to do some monumental task? Go, no, he did all the work. He's like, why don't you just tell him what I did? That's all I'm asking. Just tell them, and guess what? I'll speak to their spirit. I'll let the truth resonate in their heart. If all you do is just be a mouthpiece for me, I'll do the rest. And we're like, that's a lot. Oh, wow. I got to talk? That could be uncomfortable. Yes, it is. But you know what? Is it worth it to win someone into Christ? Is it worth it to at least give them an opportunity? Right? The reason why we're here today, the reason why we're safe today is because someone had an uncomfortable conversation with us one day. And we went, wow, I needed to hear that. And you know what? There's conversations you're going to have with people. Some people will respond, and man, they'll just repent. They'll, they'll just give their heart to God. And other people are going to get, I'm not going to use the word I was going to use, angry, upset. Right? They're going to get frustrated. I can tell you there was a friend of mine years ago, and he was talked about whenever he was under conviction of salvation. And he was dating a girl, and he was coming to church just for her. And man, he would go, and they would preach, and he was like, Shh getting frustrated, getting mad. And what's happened? God was compelling him. And he said he was sitting there holding on to the back of the pew, just like, just so like, man. Because he could feel God drawing him. But he was fighting it with all his might. And he told me, he said, man, if someone had come up to me and said, hey, can I go down with you? He said, I would have hit them as hard as I could. I don't care, man or woman. I was ready to explode. And he said that before the invitation was over, he walked out of the church, went out into his car, and before you could pull out the parking lot, put the car in park and just broke and gave up. Can I tell you, many times the people you deal with who are the angriest are the ones that are the closest. Yeah. They're fighting with all their might to hang on at the last second. I will not give in. I will not. And then they finally let go. It's a compulsion from God. It's not you. Just share the truth and love and let God grip them. Pray for God to get a hold of their heart because I'm telling you, He can do what you cannot do. We'll never convince somebody to Jesus, right? We live Christ, we share the truth and love, and God does the work. That takes the weight off of us. It's not up to us. It just simply means we do what God calls us to do. None of that's in my message. I don't know where in the world I am. Uh, okay, yeah, I know. I think We'll just start here and just see what happens. Um, at this point in time, Joshua's done all that he can, right? So he's, the strongholds have been defeated. The armies of their enemies have been disbanded. And all they need to do is remember that their mission, which is to make this land, this pagan land, into the Holy Land. That's what it was supposed to become. And the reason why it was supposed to be the Holy Land, the reason why it was supposed to be sanctified, was so that God could use Israel as an image of His love and His power and His majesty to the world. The world was supposed to see this land and it was unique and special and it was free of all the destruction of false doctrine and lies. So God's plan initially was to reach the world through the Jewish people. But you know what, eventually what happened was the Jews rejected him enough Teresa he said, you know what? They're no longer going to be the vehicle I'm going to use. Now, we're going to go to the Gentile world. I'm going to form something called the church. And what's really cool about this Think about it, right? Jesus said, the way. The way that the church, what's what's the vehicle God uses to reach the world? The church. The church, the way. He uses the, the truth through the way to bring them to life. How beautiful, right? God has a purpose and a plan for all aspects of our lives. The good things we go through that teach us lessons. And you know what? The hard things that we go through that force us to be dependent upon him. He's breaking us down sometimes to allow him to use us for his glory. And then we go, what's my purpose? What's my purpose? What's my purpose? He told us what our purpose is. Matthew 28 verses 19 and 20. Notice what he says. Go ye therefore. This is your job. Go. Go. Go to the world and teach all nations. Tell them the truth. Tell them the truth that I love them, that I created them for a love relationship with me, that I want, to rest- rest- I want them to be restored unto me. I didn't create them for destruction. I created them for a love relationship and closeness with their creator. And I gave them away through Christ to be restored when they're un- 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 unable to be restored. Then he says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost. A physical representation, something we do to show what's happened in our hearts. He says this, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever commanded you. Teaching them, that's discipleship. Pouring into other people's lives. And lo, I am with you, always, even to the end of the world. Amen. None of these things will you do by yourself. None of these things am I dependent upon you and your talents, abilities, and skills. I'll be with you the whole way. You just do what I tell you. If you love me, keep my commandments. This is his commandment. We have a purpose. And we have to be united in our purpose, right? United in our focus, united in our faith, united in our purpose. And though times have changed, can I promise you that our purpose has not changed. It has not altered one bit. The distractions have increased. The complexity of life seems to have increased. Technology and all the things that have done. But you know what technology does? Though it's been used for great destructive force in this world, it also makes this world a lot smaller. We can minister to somebody in another country. We can have a conversation with somebody in another part of the world and it doesn't cost us a penny. It's amazing. Back in the past, you'd have to get on a sailing ship and travel for months and months and months to share the gospel with somebody. Now, if you have a phone number, or a way to communicate them or an internet, man, you can send that same message directly to them and communicate with them and minister to them. It's a gift, but we have to use it for the glory of God, not for selfish, stupid purposes. God wants us to conquer our spiritual promised land so that we can be most effective in fulfilling our purpose, our mission to reach the world. This is why we need to consecrate ourselves. This is why we focus our hearts on being the greatest earthly representation of the Lord that we can possibly be. Because guess what? In the end, that is what we will be judged for. Okay? Now, there will not be a judgment for sin, but there will be for service. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10, this is to the church. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done his service, whether it be good or bad. As I said, there will be no judgment for sin. That took place on the cross. Jesus bore that. But there will be a judgment for our service, the way that we choose to live the lives that God has given us. And listen, God's made us, uh, made us for the purpose that he would use us, right? How available do we make ourselves on a day-to-day basis? This is, has to be our challenge. How sanctified are we? How holy are we? What are we putting into ourselves and what's coming out of us? And so before we move forward, before we take another step in our journey, right, let's learn from what Joshua's teaching us, right? Hey, hey, let's all gather together here. Now, certainly collectively, but also individually, in our own hearts. Setting ourselves and saying, okay, what do I need to do? I need to be united in my focus. I need to be united in my faith. And I need to be united in my purpose. Why am I here? What am I doing to fulfill this purpose? These three elements are what he says. This is what you guys need to know before we go one step further. This is the key. And if we're to succeed in this Christian life... It's essential for us. See, our whole life should be exactly what that thing says, centered on the Lord. And if we will be, oh my soul, we will be amazed, dumbfounded, astonished at what God can do. I'm telling you, knowing who I am, knowing where I come from, the fact that God would use my life, anything like this just blows me away why do my friends in high school think that it's just so crazy that guess what I am who I am today because they knew I was if you didn't know me just be like oh brother are you kidding me God can take the most unworthy of us and do something great if we'll just get out of the way and man you guys have so much more potential than me And so many people, I just want to see you flourish for the glory of God. And that's the key. We must be centered on the Lord and has to be reminded every single day. Because if we're not, we'll get caught up in the cares of the world. Our focus will be on us. And the next thing you know, the purpose we're here for just gets lost in the mix. And we look like many of the other churches in our city where people go to a concert, have a great time, leave there slapping each other on the back, never think about God until next Sunday. That's not what we're called to be, so let's do better, all right? Lord, thank you so much for your gift of the Word of God. I thank you, Lord, for the opportunity that you've given us to be on the earth at this time. Lord, it is a wicked place. Oh, but boy, light can make a big difference when darkness is great. So, Lord, I do pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray specifically for this group, this body. Uh, Lord, that you would work in our hearts and lives. Help us, Lord, to surrender to your spirit, surrender to your word, to set our hearts and our minds and our affections on things above, not on the things of the earth. And Lord, help us not to be a Laodicean church, Lord, that's consumed by distraction, but Lord, allow us to be a new Philadelphia, a Philadelphian church that's set on the heart of God, which is brotherly love. Lord, help us make a difference. Please, I beg you, help us. Help us make a difference. Help us speak to our neighbors, our coworkers, our children, friends, family. God, would you use us not to argue points or fight people on political views, but show the love of Christ. Oh, God, you displayed love to us in the ultimate form. And you showed us an example of how to reach people when you were here. Help us, Lord, to follow your example, to give grace, to be kind, to be loving, to have ears to hear, to be Lord, a representation, physical representation of you on the earth. God, thank you for your love, for your purpose and plan for us, And I pray that God, you'd use us mightily, each one for your glory. With their heads bowed and with their eyes closed. Look, if you're here today and you say, listen, I don't know necessarily where I stand with God. There are a lot of people sitting in church today that I can tell you this. Lots of them are not on their way to heaven. Not because they don't believe in God, sure. See, the Bible talks about a surrender, submitting our hearts to him, surrendering to what he did for us on the cross. We're all born with a sin nature. We've all done things wrong. No one, no one is without that issue. And because Jesus loves us and because he knew that about every single person when he was on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Looking at the people in front of him, but also speaking into the future. And there's lost people around the world today that are either denying the Lord or trusting in a God that's not even the one in the Bible. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he's offering salvation to the world. It's not about simply believing in who he is, but it's trusting that you are a sinner and you need that Savior. And if you will surrender to the call you feel on your heart, whether you're watching this recorded or listening to this on a podcast, it doesn't take a preacher doesn't take a ceremony. It doesn't take a magic prayer. It's nothing more than a broken heart calling out to a loving God waiting to restore. So if you've never received Christ as your Savior, you've never called out from a broken place realizing that you need Him, you have an opportunity right now to do so. I'm going to lead you in prayer. There's no magic in the prayers. It won't be your, your words that would save you. It would be your heart. So their heads bowed and eyes closed. If you want to receive Christ as your Savior, I'm going to ask you just to repeat after me in your heart and in your mind, speaking to God, not to me. If you want to receive Christ, repeat it for me. Dear Lord, I know that I'm a sinner and I am so sorry for my sin. I understand that there is a penalty to be paid, a debt that I owe because of my sin. I also believe that you died on the cross to pay that debt. I'm asking you right now in the best way I know how to save my soul. I sinned. To restore me back to my Father and give me a home in heaven, Lord, I thank you for saving me. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for redeeming me. I will see you in heaven one day. For it's in Jesus' name I pray and give thanks. Amen. Head still back.